You're listening to the Odyssey Out Loud. I'm Anna Katerina. Episode 22. Odysseus begins his story. As the bard told his story, and sang of the destruction of Troy and the terrible fighting the Argives endured, Odysseus sat and wept. No one else there noticed the tears pouring down. Alcinous was the only one to notice him and understand. He sat next to him and heard the way he sobbed. At once he said to the oar-loving Phaeacus, Listen up, you leaders and commanders of the Phaeacus. Have Demodocus stop playing his dulcet lyre. He's not making everyone at all happy with what he sings. Since we ate dinner and the godlike singer got up, since that moment the stranger hasn't stopped weeping miserably. No doubt there's some pain wrapped around his heart. But come, have Demodocus stop, so we can all, hosts and guests, enjoy ourselves the same. It's really for the best. We arranged all this, the escort and dear gifts for an admirable stranger, and we give them out of friendship. To anyone who's even the least bit sensible, a guest, a suppliant, is just like a brother. So, sir, don't try to conceal with some calculating scheme what I'm asking you. It's better if you say. Tell us your name. The one your parents and your neighbors called you. No one, good or bad, is entirely nameless when they're first born. Parents give a name to one and all when they're brought into the world. Tell me your country, your region, and your city so the ships can find their way and escort you there. Our ships are intelligent, the Phaeacus don't have any pilots, and there aren't any rudders like other ships have. The ships themselves understand the minds and hearts of men. They know all their cities and rich fields, and they swiftly travel through the great gulf of the sea, covered in clouds and mist, without any fear at all of being harmed or destroyed. But I'll tell you something I heard once, as my father Nausithuus used to tell it. He said... The Poseidon had a grudge against us because we guide everyone safely. He said that one day Poseidon would wreck a well-made ship of the Phaeacus on its way back from an escort on the Misty Sea, and he'd surround our city with a great mountain. That's how the old man talked. The god would make it happen, or he wouldn't. Whatever he wanted. But come, tell me this and give it to me straight. Where did you lose your way? And which countries did you reach? What about the men themselves? and the well-placed cities. How many men were hard and savage with no justice at all? How many were hospitable with God-fearing minds? Tell me why you weep and grieve in your heart for the Argive Danaeans and when you hear the fate of Ilion. Well, the gods did that. They spun the destruction of men so there'd be a song for men yet to be. Did some in-law of yours, a solid, decent man, die at Ilion? Your brother or father-in-law, perhaps, the kind of person who's dearest to you after your blood relations. Or maybe some friend. A noble and delightful man, since an understanding friend like that is just as good as a brother. Answering him, inventive Odysseus said, Lord Alcinous, most renowned of all men, it really is a fine thing to listen to a bard like this with a voice just like the gods. I have to say there's nothing as nice as when happiness takes hold of a whole place. The guests, seated in rows throughout the house, listening to the bar, the tables nearby full of bread and meat, the cupbearer drawing wine from the mixing bowl and pouring it into cups. 
Somehow, for me, I think this is as good as it gets. But you want to ask me about the troubles that make me sad, so I can continue to weep, grieving more. What should I start with, then? Where should I stop? Since the gods above gave me many troubles. I'll start with my name, so you can know who I am. And once I've gotten clear of this unforgiving time, I can be your host, even though my home is far away. I'm Odysseus Lertiades. Everyone pays attention to my cunning, and my fame reaches heaven. I live in beacon-like Ithaca. A mountain stands out in it, Neriton, with rustling leaves. Around it lie many islands, right next to each other, Dulichian and Same, and wooded Zakynthos. It's low, near the earth, and lies farthest out at sea towards the gloom, the others away towards the sun and dawn. It's rugged, but a good nurse of young men. As far as I'm concerned, I can't see how anything's sweeter than your own land. But Calypso, goddess of goddesses, held me back in the hollow caves of her home. She wanted me to be her husband. And clever Kirke the Aiyan also kept me in her halls, hoping I'd marry her, but she never persuaded the heart in my chest. If you live far away in a foreign land, away from your parents, even if you live in a rich house, there's still nothing sweeter than your fatherland and family. But I should tell you about my trip back from Troy. It was full of troubles, which Zeus sent me. The winds carried me from Ilion and brought me to the Kikones at Ismaros. There I sacked the city and destroyed them. Taking their wives and many things from the city, we split them among ourselves so no one would be cheated of his fair share by me. Then, I won't lie, I commanded us to flee with swift feet, but they were huge idiots and didn't listen. Then a lot of wine was drunk, and they slaughtered many sheep and swaggering curve-horned oxen by the shore. Meanwhile, the Kikones went and told the other Kikones, their neighbors living on the mainland, they were stronger and knew how to fight men on horseback and when they needed to on foot. They came then in the morning, as many as leaves and flowers come in spring. A bad fate from Zeus was near us then, doomed to a sad end where we would suffer a lot of pain. Making a stand, the men fought a battle beside the swift ships, throwing bronze-tipped spears at each other. While it was morning, the holy day rising, we stayed, fighting them off, even though they outnumbered us. But when the sun went past the end of the day, right then the Kikones turned, overpowering the Achaeans. From each ship, six well-armed companions were destroyed. For the rest, we escaped death and fate. We sailed on from there, broken-hearted for our loss, overjoyed at our escape. But the smooth-turning ships went no further with me until someone called out three times to each of the poor comrades who died on the field cut down by the Kikones. Zeus, the cloud-gatherer, stirred up Boreas, the north wind, against the ships in a fierce, supernatural storm, and covered both land and sea with clouds. Then night arose from heaven. The ships were carried sideways, and the strength of the wind tore the sails in three and even four parts. We dropped them to the ships, fearing destruction, and quickly rowed towards land. We lay there for two straight days and nights, eating our hearts out with pain as much as exhaustion. 
But when fair-haired dawn brought the third day, setting up the masts and hoisting the white sails, we sat, and the wind and the pilots steered the ships. And now I would have come, unharmed, to my fatherland, but rounding the Malayan headland the current and the wave, and Boreas pushed me back, driving me off course from Kithera. I was carried away on the fish-filled sea for nine days by deadly winds. But on the tenth we landed in the country of the lotus-eaters, who eat a flowery food. We went ashore there, and drew water, and my companions quickly took their dinner there beside the swift ships. Once they'd had their food and drink, then I sent companions to go and get information about what sort of grain-eating men there might be there. Picking out two men, I sent a third, as a herald with them. Let's talk about grain-eating for a minute here because it's not a throwaway and it deserves your attention. The word is siton, bread, food, grain, you could use any of those, but the important thing is not meat. I'm not going to tell you what it means, what it represents, but keep it in mind. Think about what it means to cultivate crops, to go through the process, the farming and harvesting and grinding and mixing and baking and finally eating. The making of food that didn't have to be born and didn't have to die for your dinner. Whether you're meat-eaters or not, you have that addition, that option. Think about what that says about a people, to describe them that way, and what the alternatives might mean. Like this one, like the people Odysseus is about to describe as he continues his story, as he tells you that... The three men went and quickly met with the lotus-eaters... They weren't trying to destroy our crew, but they gave them lotus to eat. And whoever ate the honey-sweet fruit of the lotus didn't want to come back anymore, or report, but wanted to stay right there with the men, the lotus-eaters, eating lotus, and forget about going home. I hauled them back to the ships, sobbing, and then dragged them on board and tied them under the rowing benches. Then I told the other faithful companions to hurry and board the swift ships in case somehow someone else ate the lotus and forgot about going home. They got on board immediately and sat down at the rowing benches. Sitting in rows, they struck the gray sea with their oars. We sailed on from there, hearts heavy. We came to the land of the lawless, bullying cyclops. Putting their faith in the immortal gods, they don't plant trees or plow, but everything grows wild and uncultivated. Wheat and barley and vines, rich in grapes for wine, and Zeus storms make them grow for them. They don't hold advisory meetings or have laws. Instead, they dwell on the high mountain peaks and hollow caves. And each one decides what's right and wrong for his wife and children, but they won't listen to each other. An overgrown island stretches out in front of the harbor, not close, but not too far from the land of the Cyclops. It's wooded, and there are countless wild goats on it, since the comings and goings of men don't scare them off. And hunters don't go there either, men who endure pain in the woods exploring the mountain peaks. So, occupied by neither flocks nor fields, but untilled and unplowed all its days, uninhabited, it feeds bleeding goats. The Cyclops don't have any red-proud ships, and none of them are shipwrights who'd have worked on vessels with fine rowing benches. Ships that could do everything. Reaching men's towns, just like people use them to cross the sea to one another. They'd have done a fine job developing the island for them. There was nothing wrong with it. It would grow all crops in season, 
There were soft, watery meadows on it by the shore of the Grey Sea. Vines wouldn't fail there, and there was smooth, arable land on it. They'd be sure to always reap a deep harvest in season, since the soil is very rich. The harbor there has good mooring places. There's no need for ship's cables. You don't have to drop anchor or fasten the stern, but instead you can bring the ships ashore and wait for whenever the sailors' hearts urge them on and the winds blow. Also, at the head of the harbor, good water flows, a spring from beneath a cave, and black poplars grow around it. We sailed down there, and some god led us through the dark night. There wasn't enough light to see. There was a deep mist around the ships, and no moon. The clouds covered it. No one caught sight of the island then. And no one, in fact, saw the huge waves rolling towards dry land before the ships with fine rowing benches ran ashore. Bringing the ships into harbor, we lowered all the sails and got down ourselves at the edge of the sea. Going to sleep there, we waited for divine dawn. You've been listening to The Odyssey Out Loud. I'm Anna Katerina. You can learn more and listen to new episodes at theodysseyoutloud.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash odysseyoutloud. Thank you for listening. <laughs>